The Master of Arts in New Arts Journalism at SAIC is designed to provide students with the necessary skills and experience to write about the arts for diverse audiences. Located in a vibrant school of contemporary art and design, the MA in New Arts Journalism program provides full engagement with the theory and practice of journalism, as well as the opportunity to work closely with artists, art historians, cultural theorists, and art critics connected to a major American museum. For more information about the Master of Arts in New Arts Journalism at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, go to saic.edu. Welcome to Moments the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. So, Sky, who did you talk to this week? I spoke to Nikki Columbus. Uh, she's someone who's taken on some real critical power this year. So some of our listeners might recognize her name from publishing, say, the final word on the new MoMA, which as we might remember from what feels like a decade ago, but January of 2020, <laughs> um, there was a ton <laughs> oh of press. And, and it seemed that Nikki and her partner, Claire Bishop, uh, really produced the final word through a kind of piece of speculative art criticism in which they were kind of imagining um, what the new MoMA could have been, but treating it as though they were reviewing what it was, which hmm. was both like, in, you know, entirely inspired and and, and totally effective um, hmm. and really sort of, I think, opened a few windows for what criticism could do, how it could function um, right now. And then the second piece that um, she wrote this year that really sort of um, made waves, and this is the one we'll be talking to her about today, is uh, Gustin Can Wait, also published in N Plus One and uh, addressing the Philip Gustin controversy, which has taken on such epic proportions this year as to be, uh, as to crack through the mainstream media, which is, as we know, pretty unusual unless we're talking about like, you know, auction records being broken or something. Um, And again, she was weighing in pretty uh, late, arguably, in in that whole conversation's development and yet had what many would call the final word um, in, Mm. in saying that basically structural racism is not being addressed through this controversy, let's move on. Um, There are bigger issues at stake here, and this is sucking too much air out of the room. So Nikki Columbus has been having a really big year with criticism, but I know she's also a curator, and her name came to my attention regarding a controversy with MoMA PS1. It was about three years ago that she brought a claim against MoMA PS1 for essentially rescinding their uh, job offer to, I think it was a performance curator um, title that she was being offered. Uh, because she had just had a baby. And it was one of those moments where it was just so blatant that she was emboldened to advance with, you know, this happens, I think, to a lot of women, and you just kind of can't prove it. Mm -hmm. Um, But in her case, she really could. So she went ahead with uh, the claimant, and indeed, they settled. What's really remarkable about it, though, is that they offered her more money in order to stay silent on it. And she demanded basically the ability to talk. So mm-hmm. I think she she took a cut in terms of what she could have settled for, and it has it has meant that she could have a conversation like the one she had with me, in which she goes into it like great detail <laughs> what happened. Right. And I, this is only relevant. It's I mean, of course, it's fascinating and um, galling, but it's relevant here I think because she has this history of institution defying bravery, and yeah. though she has I think stepped into this year as the critical voice we need. Um, It wasn't always this way. She says she used to be far more reticent. Mm -hmm. But she was, I think, emboldened by her own actions with this case and um, began to really harness the strength of her voice and issue her power through criticism. Oh, that's really exciting. I have so much respect for that. It's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you look at even an Instagram um, feed, like change the museum, and it's all of these just kind of completely grotesque and horrifying and not surprising at all stories about museums taking Mm -hmm. advantage of their power and keeping people down. And um, I I know what it's like to be in an institution and feel like you're, you know, everything about your career and in that way also 
you know, your life and yourself is bound up in like how that institution perceives you. Mm -hmm. Um, And for somebody who's like so high up on that ladder to really take a stand against that kind of treatment is just so, so inspiring. Absolutely. And I know it came at a cost to her. I I, I should say she's not an active curator anymore. (laughs) And I I wouldn't want to speak for her in saying that that's a direct result, but I, she does more or less intimate that that's the case. You know, she she's had a really hard time landing uh, permanent work since then, and I think in part that's where criticism steps in as a tool right. that she wanted to sharpen because it's available to her as a freelancer right now. Mm, that's mm-hmm. really interesting. Okay, I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> Here is Nikki Columbus reading her text "Gustin Can Wait," published in N Plus One on October twenty seventh, twenty twenty. At the end of last month, so that's this referred to September when this was published, with the presidential election just weeks away, critics at the New York Times and the Washington Post fired off vigorous denunciations of censorship, decrying actions akin to those of Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia. The outrage soon spread to Twitter. Thomas Chatterton Williams, author of the infamous Harper's Letter, objected that, quote, creators are being pre-canceled unquote, while the Intercept's Ryan Grimm blamed an, quote, element of the left, unquote, for the whole shameful affair. The real October surprise, it seems, is that there are quite a lot of Philip Gustin superfans, from art critics to cultural commentators to political journalists, and they are super mad that the artist's retrospective, only the third since his death in 1980, has been postponed. Yes, Philip Gustin, whose cartoonish figures, knobbly and hairy, clutching and sucking at cigarettes in a palette of bloodshot pinks and reds, are instantly recognizable, whose paintings can be found in the collections of every major American museum and quite a few international ones, whose work is currently on view in New York alone at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Modern Art, and the Whitney Museum of American Art. Philip Gustin Now, the ironically titled exhibition in question, was originally scheduled to open this June at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and then travel to three more museums, Tate Modern in London, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, before COVID-19 forced a year's deferral. In late September, the four institutions released a joint statement announcing a further three-year delay. Quote, We feel it is necessary to reframe our programming and bring in additional perspectives and voices to shape how we present Gustin's work to our public, unquote. Although unmentioned in the press release, at issue were a number of paintings that depict the Ku Klux Klan in the artist's usual darkly comic style, as well as more realistic drawings of lynchings, which reportedly led to objections from staff. The National Gallery's director, Kaywin Feldman, who, like all four museum directors, is white, later explained in an interview, quote, because Gustin appropriated images of black trauma, the show needs to be about more than Gustin. An exhibition with such strong commentary on race cannot be done by all white curators, unquote. The reaction was fast and fustian. Tate Modern's own curator on the project, Mark Godfrey, posted an extended Instagram statement taking issue with the postponement, which he called, quote, extremely patronizing to viewers, unquote. Next, an open letter demanding the show's immediate reinstatement was published in the Brooklyn Rail, signed by more than 90 prominent artists, art historians, art critics, and art dealers. A Google Doc is still collecting signatures, which now number close to 3,000. Quote, Museums must engage in a reckoning with history, including their own histories of prejudice, avers the letter, before continuing more dubiously. Precisely in order to help take that effort of reckoning forward, the Philip Gustin Now exhibition must proceed as planned, unquote. But must it? Not much news from the art world pierces the media sphere, and if it does, it tends to revolve around money either ludicrously high auction prices or flashy new erections by Starkitects. The Gustin kerfuffle, on the other hand, has something for everyone cheesed off by the intolerant left, 
the beleaguered white male genius, the specter of cancel culture, mealy-mouthed BR-speak. But the idea that a museum's sensitivity to employee concerns and the larger political moment is equivalent to censorship is absurd, while the charge that the delay is somehow an insult to museum-goers is an obvious displacement of anxiety. If you can read through the turgid commentary, it's easy to see that the reasons behind the show's postponement lie not with the artists or the audience, but with the museums themselves. A 2018 survey of U.S. art museums found that only 16% of curatorial departments and 12% of leadership identified as Black, Indigenous, or people of color. Meanwhile, over at the National Gallery of Art, the curatorial staff is 98% white, and the director's office is... Or 100% white. Museum guards, largely BIPOC, have complained of racial discrimination and sexual harassment by white managers. The Brooklyn Rail communique claims that museum leaders don't want to present the Gustin exhibition because it will, quote, remind museum goers of white supremacy and thus raise uncomfortable questions about museums themselves, about their class and racial foundations, unquote. So how, then, should the four institutions address these, quote-unquote, histories of prejudice? In an impressive feat of circular logic, the letter proposes that the Gustin exhibition be held now. Almost as an afterthought, it concludes that, quote, staffs must prepare themselves to engage with the public and do the necessary work to present this art in all its depth and complexity, unquote. It's difficult to say which assertion is more perturbing that the prejudice museums must reckon with is in the past, or that the only necessary work is to learn up. The latter is precisely the kind of, quote, translation of black suffering into white pedagogy, unquote, that Sadia Hartman despairingly observed in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. Seeing this moment as just another opportunity for self-education, she argues, is a further symptom of the structure that produced his death. Quote, the possessive investment in whiteness can't be rectified by learning how to be more anti-racist. What is required is a remaking of the social order, and nothing short of that is going to make a difference, unquote. All of this misguided attention on Gustin, the hand-wringing hysteria, seemed particularly galling in light of how this annus horribilis has unfolded in the museum industrial complex. From the moment they closed in March, museums began firing and furloughing employees. Despite the, the buffer of vast endowments, billionaire trustees, and millions of dollars in PPP payouts, corporate mega-museums, which spend years fundraising for expensive and extraneous extensions, had no plan to protect their staffs. As in so many sectors of the labor force, the racial hierarchy of museums was thrown into stark relief. Majority white administrators and curators kept their jobs and benefits, while predominantly black and brown part-time and contract workers in visitor services, facilities, and education were cut loose. Younger full-time staff, more racially diverse than those at senior levels, were more likely to be laid off. By the first week of August, the Met, which has a $3 billion endowment, had reduced its staff by 20%. 48% who lost their jobs were BIPOC. At museums across the country, workers who remained employed organized mutual aid funds for their former colleagues, despite struggling with pay cuts. Meanwhile, museum trustees saw their stock market investments soar. While many institutions began pivoting to online classes, MoMA, which has a mere $1.2 billion endowment and whose director earned over $5 million last year, decimated its education program. All contracts with freelance educators were terminated via a terse email. Quote, it will be months, if not years, before we anticipate returning to budget and operations levels to require educator services, unquote. Compare and contrast with the museum's mission statement, which declares MoMA was, quote, founded in 1929 as an educational institution, unquote. This, then, was the landscape at the end of May when the country erupted in protests against racial injustice. White museum leadership scrambled to claim solidarity by posting black squares and works by black artists, dispatching emails that described racism as an external problem, of which they disapprove. Understandably, this irked their BIPOC employees, as well as the tokenized artists, 
In an open letter to New York's cultural institutions, thousands of past and present museum workers demanded structural changes in place of, quote, performative allyship and virtue signaling. Dozens of similar letters followed, addressed to institutions across the country. It's illuminating to return to these now and the crushing silence that greeted them in light of the Gustin farce. Take Dismantle the NGA, for example, which lists anti-racist imperatives for the National Gallery of Art, such as hiring more Black curators, trustees, and other leadership positions. Or the letter to the MFA Boston's leadership from a collective of BIPOC employees with a series of concrete action items. A few hundred artists signed a petition to the Tate, lending support to striking bookshop and cafe workers, the lowest paid and most diverse sector of Tate's workforce, and urging Tate to use at least 10% of their £7 million government bailout to retain jobs. MFA Boston workers helped to draft Boston Arts for Black Lives, a statement calling for, quote, an anti-racist, abolitionist, and decolonial ethics of care in our arts and cultural institutions, unquote. This includes the repatriation of stolen objects, an end to museum expansions that contribute to gentrification and displacement, and the prioritization of BIPOC hires at all levels. It's a far-reaching and transformative set of demands and it got as much press coverage as Elizabeth Warren's disability policy. The same could be said about most of the social justice efforts at museums in recent years, from unionization to divestment, which received little to no support from the art world's establishment, blue chip artists, eminent art historians, and other gatekeepers, leaving precarious entry and mid-level employees to wage these battles on their own. Since the summer, some museums have brought in diversity consultants and promised greater transparency, the results of which have yet to be seen. Immediate demands, such as hazard pay for public-facing staff, have been flat-out rejected. More common is the trend for hiring union-busting firms as soon as employees begin to organize. One of the few silver linings to emerge from the pandemic was the announcement, back in April, that the American Alliance of Museum Directors had relaxed its guidelines on deaccessioning. For now, museums can sell works to pay for operating expenses. Few have followed through, however, perhaps because art world pundits, once again, responded with conservative alarm. Immediately after the rules change, Sebastian Smee, art critic for the Washington Post, warned against overly short-term thinking, expounding, quote, they have been entrusted with the care of things that are collectively as well as individually of profound and lasting importance, unquote. By they, SME means museums in a callous elision of the actual human beings who care for these things, workers who are not, in return, cared for by their employers or cared about by the critical cognoscenti. Note that most large museums only exhibit 5 to 10% of their holdings at any one time, and some work never goes on view. Only two years ago, the $5 million man himself, MoMA director Glenn Lowry, spoke in favor of deaccessioning. Quote, it doesn't benefit anyone when there are millions of works of art that are languishing in storage, unquote, he reasoned. His solution, of course, followed standard museum practice, more capital accumulation. Museums should sell work in order to, quote, acquire more important works of art or build endowments, unquote. But are we really at a moment in history when the eternal perpetuity of these heaving storage units, stuffed to the brim with imperial plunder and works by white male artists, should be deemed more important than the finite lives of their caretakers? The latest scandal du jour is the Baltimore Museum of Art's deaccession plans. While legitimate questions have been raised about the upcoming sale of three paintings, and this, by the way, was postponed, the castigation is dripping with racial privilege. In a particularly ghoulish piece of commentary, quote, as night follows day, natural disasters bring out the scammers ready to exploit public confusion and fear, unquote. The Los Angeles Times' as Christopher Knight recently complained about, quote unquote, mission-driven deaccessions. That is, selling works to finance increased equity and diversity for both museum employees and audiences by raising salaries, restructuring staffing, 
offering free admission and expanding museum hours. Yet the alternative is ensuring that the office and the visitors remain white while security and maintenance stay black and brown. It is effectively an argument for maintaining white supremacy at museums. The much ado about Gustin reflects one of the art world's most cherished delusions. Museums can only fight structural racism and other social injustices with exhibitions. The result is not unlike all those black squares and empty words back in June. Take MoMA's response to Trump's Muslim ban in 2017, when the collection was rehung with works by Iranian, Iraqi, and Sudanese artists, most of which had language and storage since their purchase in the 1960s. The museum was simultaneously making millions from immigrant detention centers, thanks to trustee Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock. Or just last year, when the new museum devoted three floors to conceptual artist Hans Hacke, whose work charts the connections between money, art, and politics, at the same time that the museum administration was busily trying to crush its new union. This is where the liberal rhetoric of equity in, and inclusion meets the neoliberal bottom line of racism and exploitation. Perhaps most industries have internal contradictions of this magnitude, but the events of the last year have made this incongruity between representation and action near unbearable. Let's put it this way. If you think a museum's responsibility begins and ends with the gallery space, then you probably consider the lived experience of the orcas and their trainers irrelevant to your enjoyment of SeaWorld. Confronting structural, confronting structural racism requires, well, structural change. The true work of racial justice happens behind the scenes, not on display. But as a museum's priorities evolve, they will be reflected in everything the public sees. The real issue at the heart of the Gustin fuss is that change must occur at the structural level first, so that an exhibition doesn't suddenly get pulled for some last minute tweaking. If these museums weren't so racially stratified, would they even be presenting a monographic Gustin retrospective in the first place? Imagine what pressure could have been mobilized if the Gustin letter and its famous signatories had called for significant actions. Hire BIPOC staff in senior positions. Improve entry-level salaries and benefits such as health care and family leave. Deaccession works to protect jobs, dial back expansion plans, divest from the prison and arms industries, remove problematic trustees, return colonial loot. These are not impossible goals. But alas, at a time when art workers are calling for a total overhaul of priorities, art world elites are fighting to maintain the status quo. So as I mentioned in my outreach, I've been so impressed by this piece and really admire its clarity and, and maybe more than even its confidence, its momentum. And, and to hear you read it, I mean, you sort of sound like you're having fun, which is sort of rare, <laughs> too rare in art criticism. Um, you stand at the intersection of a lot of uh, flashing lights, to my mind. You've got cancel culture, white fragility, institutional self-protectionism. And you seem to work the line from something as grave as racial reckoning to something as predictable as PR posturing. So I'd love to discuss how your position among the noise became clear to you and how you decided to weigh in. Uh, sure. That's a great question. Uh, so I had been keeping track since March about as what was happening in the museum world. As soon as the pandemic really hit the U.S., uh, museums immediately started firing and furloughing their employees, which perhaps naively shocked me. Uh, I, had, I had already been, been researching for several months uh, a forum that I was organizing on the art world as a workplace, which uh, not so cleverly was called Art Workplace, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I was organizing in collaboration with Michelle Millar Fisher, who is a design curator at the MFA Boston, one of the museums uh, involved with the Gustin retrospective, mm -hmm. and also one of the people behind Art and Museum Transparency, which is a kind of an activism and ad advocacy group. Um, and so we had been organizing a, a big forum that was suppo supposed to take place 
in in April uh, that was going to bring together a lot of of different issues such as racism and discrimination and uh, and white supremacy and toxic philanthropy and mm. and unionization uh, and we had to quickly reimagine this as a series of online forums. And the first forum was on museums. And there was also a, a former educator from MoMA spoke about what was happening at the museums. Michelle spoke, um, a union rep spoke. So I was kind of following all of this. And, and then to see that the, suddenly the mainstream attention this was all discussed a great deal in the art press, art news, yeah. art net, all of those kinds of places, uh, the art newspaper. But it wasn't getting big mainstream attention so that I was just shocked to see that the postponement of a Philip Gustin show was suddenly got all of the attention. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it was, you know, to see then um, all of the these issues about white supremacy and race which there had been so many protests uh, in the country. But then, as I mentioned, all of these open letters by museum workers talking about what museums need to do, which mm -hmm. really just stayed as open letters signed by these entry and mid-level art workers. Uh, and, and then suddenly, as I, I said, that because of this open letter, which a lot of bigger names in the art world signed, it got picked up by mainstream art critics, and then from there seem to even jump into, you know, political journalism. Right. And, and so among all of the pieces that were starting to crop up, was there one that you you were, was there a tipping point where you thought, okay, now I respond. This this is the last one <laughs> that's taking right. sort of, you yes. know, <laughs> an errant position. <laughs> yeah, no, because the open letter that was then published in the Brooklyn Rail was circulating. So I, I saw that and I thought that was, for the reasons I, I discussed, was really a terrible letter. And we all sign letters that we don't agree with 100%. Uh, but, but just that this would even be what gets you up out of your chair, I thought mm. was, was ridiculous. But I thought, okay, it's just an open letter. Then to see the New York Times and the Washington Post writing about this with such uh, in such histrionic ways, censorship and comparing these actions to, and, and this is real. I didn't, I'm, I'm not, um, I wasn't exaggerating. The Washington Post critic did compare this, the postponement, three-year postponement of this show to actions in, of Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia. So, and I probably, you know, yes. And I, I probably wouldn't even have seen that because I don't generally read the Washington Post art critic, uh, <laughs> but because of the various political journalists who I did follow on Twitter started retweeting it. You know, these are, are political journalists who don't even realize there are actually much bigger political stories in the museum world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is what you should be writing about. But because it was picked up by the mainstream, by more conservative writers uh, mm -hmm. like these art critics who pick up on these right wing talking points, but that have been picked up by the more moderate, uh, moderate centrists about cancel culture um, and this whole, oh, what, because he's a dead white man, he can't have an art exhibition. Uh, mm -hmm. This becomes their big concern as opposed to, you know what, maybe we don't need to talk about an exhibition being postponed. Maybe we need to look at what's really going on here. Right. So that that frustrated me. And I thought, so growing out of the Artwork Play series, which was a series of online forums, and all of these things get different audiences, right? We, we mm -hmm. think about whether we're writing or we're speaking or something in print or online, uh, audio, video, text. Uh, it was a, just another way of trying to bring attention back to where our values really should be and what our priorities should be. Right. And so was, was it your intention to bring this piece to N plus one for its more general readership, which I, I can't even presume... It has, but I, I would imagine it's not only art worlders that go to N plus one. Right. Uh, actually, I was commissioned by the, the publisher and editor, Mark Krotov, commissioned me after reading my 
a series of angry tweets that I'd written uh. about this. Uh, so yeah, so I, I was, you know, and I, I am not a big Twitter personality. I don't have many followers. So when I started tweeting back at Alec McGillis or Ryan Grimm, trying to tell them, no, 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 this is really not the story. You need to, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're like, who's this person with 400 followers? Uh, so <laughs> I was very happy to to get the call from, from Mark, uh, although it's probably not. I probably don't need more encouragement spending time on Twitter and sending angry tweets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it can happen. So keep <laughs> tweeting. You can see where the ripples are happening far before, you know, someone thinks to pitch. So it can right. be yeah, yes. pretty fertile ground. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and it's I follow many more uh, political writers than art writers. So that mm-hmm. tells you something that this was kind of really how I figured out this is the big story suddenly from the political right. writers. Um, but I had also I previously written for for N plus one. So Mark didn't just right. discover me. Um, I had written uh, a piece, co-written a piece on the hashtag new MoMA back in January for, for N plus one. Yeah. And I have to say these two pieces, um, so free your mind, uh, which was published in, uh, the very beginning of this year with your partner, Claire Bishop had, uh, I, I thought huge waves. And, and then this piece again on Gustin, these are like the two signature pieces this year from N plus one that have been on my radar. So I think that really, that's a testament to you. And obviously you're you're doing good work there. Can we talk a bit about what that editing process looks like? Oh, uh, sure. Um, M plus one has a, a very light editing style, uh, mm. which I think is probably the preference of most writers. I, and I say this as an editor who does mm-hmm. not have a light touch. Um, <laughs> the best writers love to be edited and they mm-hmm. love to be pushed by an editor. Uh, and and I'm not subtweeting anyone here. <laughs> I would say that you know m- more in insecure writers uh, often really bristle at, mm-hmm. at editing. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know how many people I have just offended with that comment, but uh, no. So so I so we had actually originally uh, written the the new MoMA piece for Art Forum, uh, which had commissioned. Uh, Claire, who, yeah, as you said, is my partner. Uh, she's also an, an art historian, a professor at the CUNY Graduate Center, and has written frequently for Art Forum. And I was actually an editor at Art Forum over a decade ago, where I learned to be a very um, involved editor. And so uh, Claire was commissioned. She told them she was going to have me co-write it with them because we'd been talking about it a lot. And we wrote a speculative review. So uh, a number of people thought this was literally what MoMA had done in their new rehang. But alas, it was just, and it's very related to my piece on Gusset in terms of uh, reimagining both a collection hang that really Mm. rethinks modernism through the lens of of actual history and uh, and important historical events, um, and then also reimagines how one could structure a museum uh, to to provide more you know equity diversity. I don't know if we have better words for those things now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Art Forum killed it, and then we went to N plus one. Oh my god! Uh, which, Can we pause on yeah. that for a minute? <laughs> well. Uh, there are a few stated reasons. One was that Claire had not told them she was going to co-write it with, with me, which was not true because she had told them verbally and then even by email. Um, and But I guess for whatever reason, nobody picked up on that. Uh, mm. And then the other reason stated was that I could not be impartial. Um because of my experience uh, of a discrimination at MoMA PS1, um, right. which I, maybe we should go into a little bit later. You let me know. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So because, uh, and even that's MoMA PS1, this was MoMA, um, uh, it was referred to in, in the piece uh, as part of the the utopian idea, the speculative idea of what MoMA could be, it, it would be one that would remove um, problematic, to put it nicely, trustees, 
and as well, um, people who are guilty of racism, gender discrimination, and so on, including the three men who had discriminated against me at MoMA PS1. So that was part of it. Uh, but I felt like, well, this is a very large social justice framework, and it seems very disturbing to me that somebody would think all of my interest in social justice and anti-racism comes only out of my own personal experience, and that somehow that personal experience means that then I can no longer write about these issues. So then we took it to N plus one, where they had none of these issues. And I should say also part of it was that we did also refer to what had happened at Art Forum, which was that the publisher Knight Landisman uh, was removed after he was accused and sued for sexual harassment. And Art Forum was also sued for having protected him for years and years, despite what turned out to be many, many complaints, which I had not, which I had not known about as, as I worked there, which also came as a shock to me. Mm-hmm. So I keep saying the word shocking. There are a lot of shocking things in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a, it's been a know, year for like, that, especially. Yeah, we like to think that we have to let go of this myth that we're any more progressive than any other mm-hmm. sector of business. Mm-hmm. So N plus one is a light editorial touch. As an art editor, is that does that f- feel like freedom or like negligence? <laughs> No, I, I wouldn't say negligence. I, I'm sure they see it as as a kind of trust. Um, mm. I do feel a little bit like, oh no, I'm I'm being left on my own. But it also comes with a lot of encouragement. And uh, Mark actually originally had thought of restructuring the piece, and then he decided to leave it as it was. So even there, you know, that shows he's thinking about what works and what doesn't work. Probably it was more frustrating for him because I then kept finding more things that I wanted to change and dragging it out and being like, oh, actually, this doesn't work and that doesn't make sense and I have to change that. And I still look at it. I'm like, oh, I should have. Oh, I could have said that differently, or Mm -hmm. you know, I have to stop myself from from emailing him to say, can we just change this now? You don't Mm -hmm. have to announce that it's been changed, but I just want to change a couple of words. So yeah, I mean. I kind of pushed myself to keep adding it. It started as like a kind of a tight 1500 words. And then I thought, oh, this could be expanded. And once it's online, you know, you can keep writing more things in. Um, I also, I thought our, the, the new, the new MoMA piece, the speculative review had links, a lot of links, not just to the works of art, which were right. all in MoMA's collection and are online, but also to things that we cited or referred to. And I kind of thought this one would have links too, um, which and it turns out that that was, it was totally unusual that the previous piece had had those links. So, mm-hmm. so then I thought, okay, maybe I should add in more since it won't be linked or take this out because it doesn't work right. without a link. So it's, it's interesting, hey, as an online publisher myself, I can really relate to this point. I mean, the links become this sort of undergirding for a piece that is trying to do such economical work in terms of what references it pulls in and, you know, the extent to which you allow your voice to carve its own path or be crowded out by your references. Links are hugely useful in, in online mm-hmm. publishing in a way that maybe doesn't get um, highlighted enough or maybe seems too mundane a point to to, to, to talk about, but I can only imagine with this piece not being capable of embedding that material would, would be a struggle. I wanted to get into sort of how you chose your, your quotes, actually. Um, mm-hmm. You're very spare. They can either show up in the text as a flint or as an emotional truth. And I really admire that you don't let yourself sort of get mired in um, what your peers were writing and allow their voices you know, much as it might be fun to kind of inflate some of those standalone quotes and allow them to do their own dumb work, you don't you don't allow <laughs> for too many others to get in your way. And I, I'd love to know about how much of a choice that is and how much discipline or not that seems to take for you. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, that totally falls on what I was saying, because part of the reason, I mean, to begin with, why I wrote it this way was because, for example, censorship and quotes and the, just taking the first paragraph, censorship in quotes linked to Jason Farrago in the New York Times. Mm. Uh, 
decrying actions akin to those of Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia, linked to Sebastian Smee in the Washington Post. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. There were links to Thomas Chatterton Williams's and Ryan Grimm's tweets, um, although those aren't really necessary because I quote them. But and then when those links were removed, I thought, you know what? Hopefully, people will trust that I'm not making up these things, <laughs> even when they're not in quotes, like the you know Nazis and Stalinism. Um, and then, yeah, as you said, I mean, I could, I could just let people kind of hang, twist in the wind with their words, but I also mm. wanted to move on from what, what people were saying. Uh, mm-hmm. And here, I, I should maybe also just highlight for for listeners that, um, yeah, I, I these are all quotes from from previously published articles and and and. Uh, and texts. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a journalist. So this is an mm-hmm. opinion piece, not reportage. I'm basically responding to what's already out there and putting mm-hmm. things together and then giving my own analysis and opinion. I didn't call up people to, to get new quotes or comments or, oh, actually this mm-hmm. happened. It wasn't factually mm-hmm. this is incorrect or something. I'm not, I wasn't doing that. So, yeah. uh, <clears throat> so yes, I didn't, I didn't want to give too much airtime as it were, to, yeah. to these points, just use them to show how ridiculous they are and then move on. Yeah. And I really want to celebrate one moment in particular where you used to great effect um, a quote of Sadia Hartman's uh, mm. translation of Black suffering into white pedagogy. And I really thought that was the, the sort of a hinge, a, a necessary hinge in the piece around which we could swing. So yeah, this was something that was... Uh, published, I think, online in Art Forum. Maybe it's in one of the issues, I forget, July or August. Mm-hmm. Sidia Hartman is just an incredible, incredible writer, like one of our great contemporary writers. Um, mm-hmm. And has just, is just so smart and, and so moral in addition to writing incredibly beautifully. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I wanted to bring in that kind of uh, that kind of voice, her voice, as a, mm-hmm. in addition to just you know journalists and tweets and and the the Gustin letter to bring in someone from the other side, the side that I'm that I'm arguing for, um, and and it was it just said she said so clearly in a way some of the things that I was trying to say, and it really augments what what my argument and augments uh, because it's her and because she's writing it. It just really makes clear the problems with this Brooklyn Rail letter. Just to repeat, so that I don't don't need people to, to remember <laughs> what I read at the very top of this. Uh, the idea that that the, the letter says we just need to do the show, we just need to educate ourselves, basically, in order mm-hmm. to do the show. And and she's arguing that this is not another opportunity for self education. This is an opportunity. Um, this what's necessary is the remaking of the social order. So mm-hmm. what's necessary is not let's just learn about this and have a show. No, we need to actually restructure museums and restructure society. Yeah, yeah. There was a Zoom panel on the Gustin controversy just as recently as last week. Um, I can't believe so this it. did this has a long tail. <laughs> Um, so I, I, was, it, I was rushing to finish this because I thought, you know, I I was struggling with childcare and 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 plumbing work and trying to find time to write this and thinking, oh God, I'm so late. Everyone's going to stop talking about this. <laughs> but no, no concern happen. there. <laughs> so it was organized by Helen Molesworth and Laura Reykjavik with a starry list of art world panelists among them yourself <laughs> and, and <me>. at about. <laughs> And at about minute 40, you know, there's a bit of a mic drop as you enter into the frame and you Mm -hmm. say, let's stop talking about Gustin. And you say you're fed up with this histrionic response and that there are bigger issues facing museums and that this conversation has, quote, sucked all the air out of the room. You also said you don't fight racism through exhibitions, but structural change. And you sort of asked the panel if they were prepared to do something real, like withhold their labor or... Um, you know, reevaluate their relationship to some of these prominent institutions that are erring on the wrong side of history when it comes to their own infrastructures and workforce. 
So it was by device and constraint, unfortunately, though, a rhetorical question. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really room for debate in that um, panel. What did that feel like? Uh, Yeah, with with all due respect to the organizers and the other speakers, I thought it was a ridiculous event. Uh, And when they asked me to participate, I did think, oh, I really should just say no, because I think this is just silly. And then I thought, if I'm the only person who's going to be saying that, you know, and I wasn't entirely, but I was the only person who said, let's stop talking about this. Uh, I thought, okay, <laughs> let me just show up and do that. And as you said, it was minute 40, but it was minute 40 because there was so much sort of meandering stuff to begin with. I was the second speaker and I yeah. said, basically, <laughs> what are we all doing here? Let's stop talking about Gustin. This is not important. Uh, mm-hmm. And and then, yeah, and then the the... The format, the, you know, Laura and Helen had said they didn't want a debate model with winners and losers, but, you know, that's also called conversation. Uh, yeah. And I think that actually there had been more back and forth, like, you know, I totally admire Coco Fusco and Charles Gaines and, and they've done incredible work, uh, but we didn't have an opportunity. Instead, we had to present our five minute positions where, which really calcifies everybody's uh, right. positions um, instead of find, discuss, discussing and finding common ground. I mean, I would have found that terrifying <laughs> to, yeah. to have to think on my feet and defend my position. But, uh, but it, I think it would have gotten, it would have pushed the conversation further. Absolutely. So, yeah, so I, I threw down, it was, I was throwing down the gauntlet to, yes, to the panel, but also to the audience. Although I think Probably a lot, you know, a lot of the audience is, is not at the senior levels that the people involved in organizing and speaking were. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem, as I as I say, that entry and mid level art workers and artists are working so hard to to make change, and at the senior level, curators and leadership, they're they're just trying to to keep on keeping on and not make change. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to talk a bit about the piece's reception more broadly beyond the constraints of that panel. Mm-hmm. Have you? Do you have a sense of how this has been picked up? I certainly I've seen it, you know, shared uh, widely. But I, I wonder what it's like for you at the center of the text. What what has that felt like? I guess the the people who share it or that I've seen are people who agree with it. I haven't I haven't mm-hmm. gotten much pushback because those people probably just ignore me. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I've, I've seen, you know, people have re- written to me and said, that was great. Thank you. Or, um, I've, I've seen, I get tagged in Facebook or, or in a tweet and I know some of these people, right. I, you know, you often know the people that you agree with. Um, yeah. and then there was a friend's father, uh, who originally wrote to me and said, Oh, what about that? Gustin thing. I'm I quite like Gustin. You know, it was that mm-hmm. it had reached that level of mainstream attention. My mother mm-hmm. also was was like, you know, <laughs> what's what's going on? This is terrible. Uh, <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so, I didn't send it to my mother, but I sent it to my friend's father. The piece uh, that is, and he wrote back, yes, totally in agreement. You know, we we can't it's, we can't think just about art without thinking about the the related social justice issues anymore. We can't separate these things, representation and action. You know, somebody who's, he's not, you know, he's a museum goer, uh, mm-hmm. uh, smart mm-hmm. and well-read, but but not not an art world person. Uh, that elusive audience that we're all yes, <laughs> often exactly. in vain yeah. reaching for. <laughs> we're going to move into some rapid fire questions around your writing practice to really finish this off. But before we get there, I wanted to, touch on this history with MoMA PS1 and and also the larger theme I'm seeing in the last few years of knowing your name and following your work is that you are brave and or certainly there's a kind of fearlessness um, that you're promoting in in whether you're kind of pressing your toes up against institutional walls or um, or issuing criticism. So can you give us maybe a bit of a sense of that from your perspective, where does this bravery come from and how do you navigate whatever fear is present in you when you're writing or say publishing? Uh, well, thank you. I, I, to be called brave is, is a tremendous compliment. I, I don't know how brave I am, but uh, I used to be incredibly conflict averse. 
I mm. would say, you know, the, the kind of person with a group of people and somebody says something and I completely disagree, but I'm afraid of creating any kind of discomfort. You can see I'm not so much like that anymore. Uh, mm. I think my experience with MoMA PS1 really changed that. Uh, so what happened, uh, just for people who are not familiar with the story, um, I'll give a brief overview. In April of 2017, I started interviewing for the position of performance curator at MoMA PS1. And uh, it was an associate curator of performance position. I was a few months pregnant at that moment. And I had been told by a lot of female friends, uh, don't tell them that you're pregnant because it's very, very easy for a prospective employer to just find another, just find a reason not to hire you. But it's really mm. because they don't want somebody who's going to be taking time off when they give birth, uh, who's going to have a baby while they're when they're working. Uh, and then the chief curator, Peter Ely, really cemented that fear in me um, by speaking negatively of the previous uh, performance curator um, who had indeed had a baby while she was working there, uh, mm. saying that she was a lot less present after she had a baby, which was ridiculous because I had I had been aware of her performance program. Uh, and she also went on, she's now the artist, the artistic director of performance space, New York, which is an incredible mm. position. So, so I, I, I knew that, that that prejudice was there. So it actually, the interview process took so long, um, that I actually gave birth <laughs> and mm. had a baby when I was offered wow. the job in, in yes in, in August. Um, and when I so then when I accepted, and all my friends were like, so when you accept when you accept the job, then you can say, oh, and I'm I'm pregnant. I had a baby, whatever. So I said, as you may know, I I just had a baby, and I just want to confirm what we had talked about schedule. Because I had asked all these questions beforehand, uh, and now I was confirming them. But because he now knew that the reason was because I had a baby, this changed things, I guess, for Peter Ely. Uh, he disappeared for a little while, and then I got an email from this uh, in September, the COO, Jose Ortiz, saying uh, that we understand you've turned down the job because you can't, you can't, fulfill, you can't do the job as presently structured. And wow. I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm accepting the job. And then he wrote back again saying, uh, sorry, I mean that the job offer is, is no longer active. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it this was, is, it's, I mean, I knew the story, but it's so galling to hear it. It was very, very blatant, uh, which is, which is great because this happens to so many women and they can't exactly prove it. Right. Uh, and I had all of the proof in in their emails, so I uh, I waited a few months because I had a newborn baby, trying to figure out what to do. Um, and and then of course there were you know friends and colleagues who said you know just leave it. You want to get a job? Just to, just don't do anything about this. But it was so wrong and I, I knew I was, I always knew I was going to do something. Um, and so the following, so July, 2018, right within the statute of limitations, I filed a legal complaint uh, with the New York city commission on human rights for gender pregnancy and caregiver discrimination. Uh, and wow. then we ended up settling the following March so March 2019. And that's because in addition to receiving a monetary settlement, part of my demand, really important part of it, was that they had that MoMA PS1 had to update their policies on anti-discrimination, on family leave, all of these things. Basically, they had to follow the law and they had to inform their employees. There was really no employee handbook. So if you worked there, you had to do your own work to figure out what your rights were. So mm. I wanted to make sure that this happened as soon as possible. So yeah. we settled in, in, uh, in March, 2019. And I also maintained very important to me was to maintain my right to talk about all of this because mm. too many women feel, um, you know, either financially or because of, they feel because of their careers, they have to sign a non-disclosure. Uh, it's because the 
person at fault, the prospective employer insists on it, but also some women are like, I don't want anyone to know this story either. I don't want people to know I make trouble. I was like, I want people to know I make trouble. (laughs) (laughs) And I want them to know exactly who discriminated against me. Uh, So Peter Ely, Jose Ortiz, Klaus Giesenbach. And so when, to circle back to this, to the critical work you're doing lately uh, in terms of publishing, is uh, is there a fear that you're overcoming or does it just not show up? Mm. Uh, yeah, so sorry, that was part that was where my <laughs> where my uh, conf- when my conflict aversion ended. And then uh, moving uh. forward, I mean, I a part of it was that, you know, I felt like, look, I'm very privileged. I'm a white woman, my partner has a good job and, and is incredibly supportive. I felt like if I don't speak up, who will, you know, plus, right. I'd already lost the job. You know, the, maybe the silver lining about, you know, after losing, it was really a whole career path and, and performance that, that, that got, um, that's been overturned or lost. But now I have a, a platform. So it got a lot of attention in, in art press, but also in the New York Times. It was written about mm-hmm. both when I filed a complaint and, and when I um, settled. And, uh, and I just feel like, okay, so the opposite of the art forum complaint. I feel like now with this personal experience and people knowing about this, now I can move that on to other issues because I don't want to just talk about what happened to me. This happens to all women. Uh, and it also happens, of course, in terms of racial discrimination and white mm-hmm. supremacy. And these are really huge issues in the museum world. Um, and that was what this artwork place series initially grew out of was feeling that a lot of these issues were kind of siloed. So you had people talking about toxic philanthropy, whether it was Warren Canders or, or Larry Fink or Leon Black, some of these, these, those are the first, the Whitney trustee and then MoMA trustees. And then you have other people talking like Shadria Labouvier was talking about her experience of racial discrimination um, at at the Guggenheim Museum. Uh, and then you have workers who are u- unionizing at museums across the country. I thought these are related issues. Let's, let's bring them together. Um, and, and so I, I was using my platform then as a writer and an editor. And I guess because of all of this, I've sort of moved more from editing to writing. Uh, although mm-hmm. really more of an, my experience is, is 20 plus years as an editor. That has been my day job. Um, And I would say that actually, I don't think this is true of all editors, but that really, for me personally, made it harder to write because I was constantly like rewriting. Like I couldn't get a first paragraph out uh, (laughs) because I was editing it constantly. So anyway, now I've moved Mm -hmm. into writing because I feel like I have something to say and I've been thrust into this position where maybe I can kind of say it which is, which is great. Like what more, Mm -hmm. like that's so important to have an opinion and then maybe people actually listen to it. But just, I also just want to quickly say in terms of bravery, um, I don't, I I wouldn't put myself in the same category as, as activists who have dedicated years to this work. And there are so many incredible activist groups, artists, activists in the art world. Uh, There's the People's Cultural Plan, uh, who are really rethinking uh, museum structure, but also in the context of city and state uh, government and funding. Um, There's Decolonize This Place, which is in a way, maybe the sort of the the mother of all of these groups, at least, you know, in the the last decade. Gulf Labor, uh, these, these, these activists have, have really shifted the conversation and and I've learned so much from them. I wouldn't be doing this. I couldn't be doing this if, if they weren't. The conversation wouldn't be this far along if not for them. Maybe this is a good time to pivot into some rapid fire questions around your writing practice then, uh, especially sure. <laughs> as you've started to embrace it more as your practice. Okay. Do you like writing? It depends. <laughs> Can I, can I, should I ex- expand on that? I, I Why not? Some, okay, there's the a middle part, which is really fun. The beginning, as I said, can be really hard. Just getting that first paragraph down, and mm-hmm. and I and and some I think I should just skip. But I was like, no, I need that first paragraph to be like the actually this Gustin piece. It took me a while 
to figure out how to get my way into it. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I realized, you know, as I was talking with you, what really, what was the most, what really made me decide to write about this? The mainstream attention to this issue. So mm-hmm. I started from there. But once I have the first paragraph, then there's a moment when you're like writing, oh, this is, this is great. I'm getting my opinions down. I'm thinking I'm, the pleasure is in crafting a sentence and making a point and, and then it gets to the hard part <laughs> yeah. again, yeah. which is yeah. one thing I find really hard. I, I actually, I do, a, I do a lot of research, 90% of which doesn't end up in whatever I'm writing. Uh, like, yeah. and not researching things that like, a, that don't make any sense to include, but I, I find it really helps me. But then mm-hmm. also the stuff that I am researching that does need to go in there, I find just like summarizing stuff really, really boring. The analysis, the fun turn of phrase, that's fun. Um, but when it gets to sometimes the real meat of the argument, that, that can I can hear it in my head, but it's very boring to write. Right. It's like walking somebody <laughs> through something that you've already, you know, been sprinting yes. for quite some yes, time. Yeah. Exactly. Can't we just yeah. let's just go to the conclusion? Yeah. <laughs> just trust me, I I've got this. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> There are some really excellent turns of phrase in that piece that we haven't highlighted yet. And one of them is you're describing Gustin's palette as bloodshot. I just loved that moment. Um, And as well, fast and Houstian. Thank you. Yes, I I was proud of those as well. (laughs) (laughs) What's your relationship to a thesaurus? Do you use one? Oh, yes, I I do uh, sometimes use the thesaurus on my computer. I do remember those really thick thesauri thesaurus mm-hmm. that we used to that we used to mm-hmm. use now I just use whatever comes with my laptop um and I would say actually for for this piece I was looking up what are more and more ridiculous words for brouhaha for <laughs> there were some like good British ones like hoo-ha if I said Augustine hoo-ha would people wonder what I was talking about uh, am I going too far uh, <laughs> am I having too not, much fun <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but there are and again you know I don't know if I'm gonna anger anyone here although I'm not naming anyone there are some writers who you just when you're reading them you can picture them pulling up the thesaurus to find more and more obscure and abstruse synonyms. Right. Uh, so <laughs> I, I don't, I try not to do that. Yeah. I mean, I would also say that's on the editor's head as well. <laughs> None of right, those, right. you know, glaring moments were sanded down. Who do you write for? It's funny because yeah, writing for N plus one is a different audience um, than when you're writing for a specifically art publication audience. I don't know if I changed the way I would write this too much, but I guess I'm still writing to people on a spectrum of the left, perhaps. Uh, Mm. Let's say I hope I'm not just preaching to the converted, but maybe hopefully preaching to the convertible. Mm, that's like well that. said. Yeah, I like that. Um, do you ever write under the influence? Well, I, I, it's not that I haven't tried. I thought, oh, maybe I just need to loosen up and have a drink, but I'm just too old and tired. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> it did not work. I was just like, oh, I think I'm just going to go to bed. I can't do this. So no, I can't. I can't do yeah. that anymore. I think as I mean, I'm I feel the same way. I think as you come to know your practice and perhaps have less fear around your writing practice, um, reaching for those things makes less and less sense. I do rely on caffeine. (laughs) I also want to know who you're reading before you write, like is and if that's even maybe something you do. Uh, Do you let a, a different writer sort of wash over you before you enter into a text? Oh, maybe I should. (laughs) <laughs> in terms of the journalism that I've been reading, I have been reading a lot of epidemiologists um, <laughs> as mm-hmm. I have become really, uh, in part, deciding about whether to send um, our child to preschool. I was reading about uh, all the things that, that we need to do that are so important and reading about pediatric transmission rates, but also about masks and ventilation, all of this. So from early on, starting in March, uh, one one great writer, not an epidemiologist, but a sociologist who often writes on technology. I don't know if you're familiar with Zeynep Tufetchi, uh, mm-hmm. who writes for the New York Times and the Atlantic. Uh, and she 
has become, it's like, if she's written something, I will, I will definitely read it. And I know I can trust it. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Uh, mm -hmm. So I haven't named any art writers. um, (laughs) But yeah, I'll have to have to I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a year for reading epidemiology, like it's prose, right? It's- yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Again, you know, what's in, what's important? What do we need to be exactly. talking about right now? Exactly. Yeah. Ventilation. Um, and maybe as a last question to you, what is the pleasure of writing? There's that finding the right word, which is great. Crafting a sentence, which either... Well, for me, it's not usually crafting a sentence that's very poetic, but one that's maybe very cutting (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, and making a persuasive argument. So it's the micro and the macro. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it can be hard to know if you've really made a persuasive argument. You know, to be honest with this piece, I was like, am I persuading anyone Um, Mm -hmm. or am I just hammering down on, on my point? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, but the pleasure is, is yeah, it's the micro and the macro of that. And mm-hmm. it can be, as you said, I had, you, I sounded like I was having fun while I was reading it. I did have fun when I was writing this, mm-hmm. but there's serious issues, but I, I also tried to have fun. Excellent. I love to hear it. Thank you so much for your time, Nikki. This has been illuminating and motivating. I appreciate that. No, well, thank you. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's great to talk about Gustin in this way, which is to say, let's stop talking about Gustin and let's start talking about structural racism. Mm -hmm. So thank you for giving me that opportunity. Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish with assistant production from Misha Shiran. This season's music is written by Ulysses Castellanos, a piece titled Gonzalo on the Beach. We would like to thank Nikki Columbus for her stellar contribution to this season. And special thanks to all of you who have been supporting the podcast. Yes, last time we did a shout out for our Patreon site and it saw a small uptick. So um, I just want to express again my gratitude for those who are listening and responding to this call. I know you have, all of us have um, a lot pulling on our attention right now and on our resources limited, especially in this year, but it genuinely makes a difference to us um, if you're able to contribute even $5 a month. So please visit us at patreon.com slash if you're able. This has been episode 27 of Momus the Podcast.